0: So before we start, or as we start, if you have this little piece of paper, um, maybe Rick and does anybody need one? Did anybody not? I know some people are don't grab bulletins. Um, there's a stack of just these out there, and so he'll come back. Um, it, this is sort of the Romans overview. There's a quote here that I wanted to start with. It's by Martin Luther, and he says the Epistle to the Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament. And the very purest gospel, which is well worth and deserving that a Christian man should not only learn it by heart, word for word. You read that right. Martin Luther says that we should memorize the entire 16 chapters of Romans word for word as Christians, but also that he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's souls. It can never be too much or too well read or studied. And the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. Martin Luther. Uh, There's some key verses. I uh, normally I try to attempt to put the verses that I'm going to cover throughout the day uh, up here. But today um, what I'm doing is these are the verses when we actually read through Romans I mean, these are the verses I'm going to sort of touch on as we work our way through Romans. Um, I, I've put some general questions down here. Uh, I'm not going to necessarily answer these, but for those of you that are note takers, you can fill in the blanks. Anytime you read the Bible or a portion of the Bible, these are good investigative questions to ask to get the context. So, who wrote it? Who are the recipients? What is the background to the origin of this letter? Why was it written, and what's the message of the letter? So hopefully I will I'll cover that today, and then on the back uh, there's a there's a chart that we'll have on the big screen at the end of today. I'm going to work through this to kind of explain it, but this is something that Charles Swindoll has done. Um, there's a bunch of them out there, uh, and you know I'm all for borrowing material and sharing it if it's done well. Uh, certainly Charles Swindoll it can. Can uh, diagram a book of a Bible. And so we'll look at this later, but from the left side, just view the left side of this chart as um, Romans 1 1. And as you work away to the right side, it's the very end, Romans 16 27. And he sort of outlines the book. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, these are the verses that we're going to read. I'm just going to slowly work through. You can just listen or you can follow along. I think these verses sort of highlight the flow of Romans that we would have understanding of uh, what Paul's trying to convey here. So Romans 1 verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also. Even among the rest of the Gentiles, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans chapter three, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ For all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter five, verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. As those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 therefore i urge you brethren by the mercies of god to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to god which is your spiritual service of worship and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will prove what the will of god is that which is good and acceptable and perfect romans chapter 15 verse 20 And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ already was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a little while. But now I'm going going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Romans chapter 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known through the, made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith and the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever amen and father we do thank you and praise you for your word lord we pray that you would help us now as we begin this journey through romans it's in christ's name we pray amen so romans is one of these books that there is little debate of books in the bible that have transformed the the church from from the early days the truths found in this letter have been radical um, there's no single quote from John Bunyan that I could find. Uh, John Bunyan is the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, a great um, work uh, dealing with a, a parable on the Christian's life. Uh, but he gave credit to, to Romans for inspiring him to write Pilgrim's Progress. That as he came to understand Romans, that's how he was so able to um, artistically describe the Christian life through um that young that man the christian's life the journey through the book if you've never read it i encourage you to read it if you're intimidated by works like that there's a children's version that's really easy to read that i that i personally enjoyed um but this is some people what they've said about romans Uh, john macarthur says this most if not all of the great revivals and reformations in the history of the church have been directly related to the book of romans John Stott says this, it is not surprising that the church in every generation has acknowledged the importance of Romans, not least at the time of the Reformation. Another quote from Martin Luther, he says this, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered it until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through. Open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me an inexpressibly sweet and greater love. The passage of Paul, this passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. And when you think about the life of that man, how he transformed the church, many of us hold scriptures in our hand that we can read because that verse so transformed him that he wanted to get the Bible into the people's hands. Uh, John Calvin says this, When anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. William Tyndall, the founder or the father of the English translations, says this about Romans. Romans is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament, and most pure euangelion, that is to say glad tidings, and also a light and a way unto the whole scripture. He went on to urge his readers to learn it by heart, for he assured them the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, with Martin Luther? You can say, well, how in the world am I supposed to memorize it I'm, I'm going to give us some homework as an option, What I'm going to try to do this year. Romans is 16 chapters. Uh, to sit through and read it at one setting can be a little bit difficult. But if you're to break it up into smaller pieces, if you just read three chapters Monday through Friday and one chapter on Saturday, you'll read through Romans in one week. And if you do that every week while we're in Romans... By the end of this year, I guarantee you, you'll have Romans memorized. You'll be able to think through this letter. And there's no question that the more we as a group understand what Paul wrote in this, this letter, uh, the, the greater depth of our understanding of God and our relationship it will be. Uh, another man, Dr. Barnhouse, he said this, For three and one-half years, I never took a text outside of the epistle to, of, to the Romans. We're going to do it in less than three and a half years. Um, I saw the church transformed. The audience filled the pews and then the galleries. And the work went on with great blessing. But just as important as the transformation of the church, there was the transformation of the preacher. The point of reading these quotes is Romans is a powerful book in the Bible. It's been said that a a, a toddler can read it with understanding and a theologian can drown in it um there are great truths and if we allow god to use this book in our lives this year i guarantee you great things will happen in our lives and i'm really excited uh, because if i'm teaching through it i've got to study it so i'm excited at a personal level uh, to go through romans and to learn it with a great familiar familiarness that um, will transform my own heart and i can't help but to think it'll help all of us so in the the framing of this the background how, who who wrote it where did it come from this is what we're going to to look at now so in romans chapter 1 verse 1 like all writings during this time they would start the conclusion of the letter or the address of who wrote it who it's to would come in the very first few verses and this letter starts out with Paul. Paul, a bond servant, probably better translated, I think, as bond slave, only because my Greek, tra- my Greek teacher in seminary made a big point. He's like, well, bond servant just seems so much more palatable. It's slave, doulos. <laughs> this, this is somebody who is a slave to the one. And so Paul, here he is, this guy that we're going to learn about When he addresses himself to them, he just identifies himself as a bond slave of Christ called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. So right away, this letter is set out as Paul's um, letter that he's the one who wrote it. What do we know about Paul? Uh, Paul, by Paul's own description in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 10, this is what he says about himself. First, he he says he's not a good-looking man or a good speaker, for he writes, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible. So when, so this is the scripture. When Paul writes about himself, what they're saying about him, he says, yeah, they say I'm a scrawny little Jewish guy that, that is a bad speaker, but I can write with boldness. Uh, there are certain men that I that I think about on certain levels. Like John Piper is a guy who writes with weightiness. But if you've ever seen him live, he's this short little skinny guy. When he speaks, he he doesn't start off as powerful. He kind of works himself into it. But by the look of his writings, you'd think that he's this this ginormous guy. And so Paul clearly from his writings, he was a powerful man. But but when you were to look at him, that's not what he was perceived as. Uh, John MacArthur says this, about him from a second second century writer a second century writer described him as a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meetings and nose somewhat hooked full of friendliness for now he appeared like a man and now he had the face of an angel so i'm not quite sure what that means but i but paul was a jewish man and i i imagine by the what we know about him that he's a skinny Not the best-looking man. He wasn't the most articulate speaker, but his message was powerful. And the Lord that he knew as Savior was a big God, and he was bold in sharing about him. If you turn with me over to Acts, it's the book right before Romans, in Acts chapter 22. So just a few pages towards the front of your Bible, we get a little testimony about who this Paul is. And before we enter the story, I'm going to ask uh, whoever's at the computer—I don't know if anybody's there—to take us to the to the map. I want to give us a sort of an outlay of what's going on here. So this is this is basically Europe, the Middle East region, following the death of Christ. We see like the first century. Uh, Jerusalem is here, the the origin of everything. So as Jesus was crucified and the gospel went out. The church spread from Jerusalem. Eventually, Paul, or Saul at the time, was ravaging the church, which we'll look at. Uh, At the northeast section here, you see Damascus. He was on his way to Damascus to to go uh, arrest, beat, and imprison those who had taken Christ as Savior. He meets Jesus there. From there, fast-forwarding, he goes on to three missionary journeys. The first journey was, was a shorter journey around this area, came back, headed, out, headed back into Jerusalem. As he was going out, reaching Gentiles for Christ, uh, a, a point of conflict sort of surfaced amongst the Jewish and Gentile believers. The Jewish believers, they were raised in Judaism. All of the early church, these are all Jewish people. And so there were certain things that were given to Israel, like circumcision, namely, that was a part of, following god well now that these gentiles they weren't circumcised and so the jewish people were sort of like well if they're becoming christians i think we need to take them through judaism 101 let them become jews and they go through the whole process and then they can become christians well paul comes around and says no they're not jews they're this is christ we can start fresh here they're not under the law and so this led to uh, what's called the jerusalem council in acts chapter 15 all of the heavy hitters of the early church meet in Jerusalem to discuss how do they work through this problem? Does a, does a, does a non-Jewish person have to be circumcised or not? They, they conclude that they don't have to be circumcised, but there are about three things that needed to happen. Acts chapter 16 is one of the funniest chapters because Paul's got young Timothy with him, a Gentile. Paul just fights that they don't have to be circumcised Yet the first thing he does to Timothy and says, hey, we got to get you circumcised just to like remove some barriers. And he's like, hey, I thought you just fought for this as a grown man. But so then the second missionary journey that Paul goes on is a much broader scope. He, he journeys all the way around here. I get kind of blurry up in this area, but modern day Greece, um, he comes down to this town called Corinth, which is going to be a significant part of our story he spends 18 months in corinth um sharing the gospel teaching people about jesus we'll look more about that there it was a huge town uh, there was a it, it, there was an isthmus there's now a canal that's a four mile stretch there but this is where sailors would go and they would carry their boats this four mile stretch in order to save the distance of sailing around major major port city and then uh he, he eventually made his way back to Jerusalem or Antioch in the northern part, and then he sets off on his third missionary journey. As he's going off on his third missionary journey, <clears throat> he makes his way around again. He's collecting an offering to help the Jews, the Jewish believers that are in Jerusalem. And so he, he makes a pit stop in Corinth, and while he's in Corinth, the second time, he spends three months While he's there during that three months is when he pens the book of Romans to send to Rome. He will look at it where he says, I want to come to you, but I've got to take this gift to Jerusalem. As he heads back to Jerusalem to give this gift while he's in Jerusalem, he's been lied about. They've been told by the Jewish people that Paul's telling the Jewish people that they don't have to obey the law, that he's done with all of this stuff. And he ultimately is arrested. And while he's arrested, uh, there's a, a hit squad is put on him to basically take his life. And his nephew kind of gets wind of this. And they, they, they flee him away to, um, to safety. They eventually work their way up to Caesarea, which is up here in this region. For those of you going to Israel, will visit the spot where Paul was in prison for two years. And along this journey... He makes a few appeals. This is where we are in, in, in Acts chapter 22. As Paul is journeying along, he, he's making his way up some steps, if my memory holds correct. And, and as he goes up, he asks, hey, can I address the people here? Can I share my story with them so that they, they know what's going on? hopefully that they'll they'll change this 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 mob mentality like they want to attack me. And so Paul was a very very bright man. He spoke multiple languages and in verse 1 of chapter 22 he says brethren and fathers hear my defense which i now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect they became even more quiet. So they didn't think They didn't think that Paul was a a Jewish man. There was tension amongst the Jews. There were the Jewish people who remained in Israel and kept their language. There were were a minority of these. The rest of them had been scattered across the earth. They'd lost their ability to speak Hebrew. They spoke whatever language that they came in. And so now Paul, who is speaking another language, suddenly starts speaking in Hebrew perfectly. And so the crowd's like, whoa, 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 Who, who, who is this guy? let's hear what he has to say and he said i am a jew verse three born in tarsus of cilicia which is modern day turkey so up here oh, i turned this off so this is modern day turkey you have tarsus up here so paul was born up in this region he was from turkey so he says i was born in tarsus of cilicia but brought up in this city so he was born in turkey But his family had money, and so they sent him to Jerusalem. And he grew up sort of in a boarding school in Jerusalem. And he he was on the fast track of Judaism, but I'm getting ahead of myself. He said, but I was brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was this rabbi that was, he was the Ivy League of, of all rabbis. You didn't go to a school to study in those days. You went to a teacher, and most teachers didn't accept you to kind of show the selective process we we know about this process that between five and ten years old of age for a jewish boy you would study um it was your elementary school you would memorize the torah the first five books of the bible so from five to ten years old this is how they they educated the the people they you memorize the book of the bible of that group of kids those that were of the elite bunch they would graduate up to the mishnah the 10 to 15 year olds this was only the extremely gifted child this is i don't know the exact numbers but if there's 100 kids maybe five of them would advance to this next level the rest of them would just be in their home and they would be discipled in the family trade and they go into the 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 craftsmen of their their family but from 10 to 15 years old those that advanced. These were the only gifted, and they memorized the rest of the Old Testament. Memorized. This is, a lay, this is a culture that not everybody had a copy of the Bible. It was transmitted orally. And so they spent these five years memorizing the entire Old Testament. This is a, I mean, we're like, going, you, they expect us to memorize Romans? That's 16 chapters. These guys memorized the whole Old Testament. And then of that group of kids most of them didn't qualify to the next level um from 15 years old they would basically go and they try to apply to a rabbi uh, i have here that only one out of a thousand would be accepted by an average rabbi they would go they would sit under the rabbi they would they would study his yoke which is his teaching what jesus says take on my yoke and so they'd sit under the rabbi's teaching The rabbi would ask a bunch of questions and basically almost everybody, he said, you don't have what it takes, move on. Now, Paul, had he was accepted by the most premier rabbi, Gamaliel, to study under him. Paul is different than all of the other apostles. All of the other apostles were fishermen, tax collectors. They didn't have what it takes. Yet Paul was a scholar of scholars. He says, I studied under Gamaliel. This doesn't mean much to us. But to the people he's addressing, he said, I studied under Gamaliel. They would have been blown back. Whoa, who is this guy? He goes strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. As you guys want to string me up right now, I was just like you. I persecuted this way, the the Christian church to death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. As also the high priest and all the council of elders can testify. So as he's speaking to them, he references the Sanhedrin, the sitting Sanhedrin. And he says, go ask them. They all know me. I was one of them. I was one of their most elite guys. In other places, he said that he was advancing in Judaism. He was on par to be the leader of the Sanhedrin, the high priest. From them, I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. And I've said it. There's, there's great butts in the Bible. This is one of those great butts. verse 6. So he's heading there to arrest Christians, but something happened. He says, but it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, get up, go on to Damascus, and there you'll be told all that has been appointed for you. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well-spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me he said brother Saul receive your sight and at that very time I looked up at him and he said the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the utterance from his mouth for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It happened as I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him, that's Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. He continues his journey until verse 21. At 21, the whole thing goes into an uproar and explodes before them. And the explosion happens because as Paul's speaking to these people, he says, and he speaking of Jesus said to me, go for, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement and then they raised their voices and they said away with such a fellow on the earth for he should not be allowed to live. So this big explosion happened. Uh, during this time, there was the Pax Rama, which Roma, I think is, or maybe I'm getting a uh, uh, you know, spaghetti sauce mixed up in my mind. I always do it. But this was the Roman peace. There was freedom of religion under Roman authority. If the peace was maintained, if there was any unrest or any sort of perceived um, where there would be a rebellion, the Romans would come in and they would just annihilate everybody. If there was an outbreak in a town, they'd let all of their roads, the Roman roads that gave for the fastest access to anywhere in their empire that the soldiers could travel. They would go and they would crucify everybody on the outside of town and they would leave them up on the crosses. And as people entered the town, it was a sign to them saying that if you go against Rome, this will happen to you. So you keep yourself in order. And so when Paul says that God called him to the Gentiles outside of the Jewish people, This sent them into an outrage. And so basically he gets Paul into custody again, and he's going to start flogging him to try to figure out what's going on, why everybody's getting upset. And we pick up in verse 25 here. It says, when they stretched him out with thongs, Paul said to the centurion, Paul has been beaten to a pulp. All kinds of stuff has happened to him. They've got him stretched out. And right before his beating, he looks at the guy and he says, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? So right now we learn from Paul, not only is he a Jewish citizen, he also is a Roman citizen, which gave special rights that your average Jewish person didn't have, uh, 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 a jewish person could just be beaten 39 times they gave uh, they gave them freedom to 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 basically wreak havoc on him not 40 times because people could die but you could do 39 times on your own so this guy's about to beat paul but paul says you know what i'm a roman citizen are you allowed to do this and when the centurion heard this he went to the commander and told him saying what are you about to do for this man is a roman the commander came to him and said uh, tell me are you a roman and he said yes the commander answered and said i acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money and paul said but i was actually born a citizen and so paul was a roman citizen by the statement that he was born a roman roman citizen his family was was a family of influence that that somebody before early on was able to acquire citizenship that was passed on to paul so paul was a big deal and the story sort of unfolds where he keeps going through these little trials. And if we turn as we're heading back to Romans, we can stop in chapter 25 when Paul is before Festus. He's going through this legal process. It's not going well. Paul's not happy with it. And in verse 11 of chapter 25, Paul basically stops the proceedings and says, I appeal to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, every citizen had the right to appeal to the, to the Caesar, and it had to happen. It could take years. And so from this, they held him in Caesarea until they got his, his ship uh, on his way to Rome, to where he sat there in prison, waiting to be seen by the Caesar. He would be let go the first time. The second time he would be seen by Caesar, a tradition holds that his head was lopped off. And so we come back to Romans chapter one. So this is Paul. This is the man that writes this, a bond servant of Christ. This is the man who persecuted those who followed after Christ, was there at the stoning of Stephen, the very first Christian to be recorded to have his life taken. Paul was there. They set his coats at his feet. I believe that Paul was the one leading it, that he was the one who had seniority, And by setting their coats at his feet, he was the one saying, I'm the one who's authorizing this to happen. Stephen was killed. This man, Paul, now says, I am a bond slave of Christ Jesus, called an apostle, set apart for the apostle of God, to be an apostle of God. Now, so Paul writes it. But if you'll turn with me to go to the very back of Romans, hold your place in chapter one, I think. (laughs) I think we'll go back there. The problem with doing these kind of studies for me is I've ingested so much information this week about Romans. This book is fascinating, and so I don't really know what's going to come out. I'm trying to make it as palatable for you as possible. But we come to Romans chapter 16, verse 22. And here we read, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean? Tertius? I thought Paul wrote the letter. See, there's a lot of speculation on Paul's writings. So we don't know what his issue was. It could have been his eyesight. It could have been arthritis in his hands. It could have whatever the reason that restricted him from writing. And so he used a scribe or a secretary to to pin this information. In Galatians, he was so fed up with the Judaizers that when he writes it, he scribbles everything out and at the end of galatians chapter 6 he writes see with what large letters i am writing to you with my own hand so galatians paul actually picked up the papyrus the piece of paper and started scribbling his words and they were big and sloppy he said i wrote this on my own but romans and and his other letters he used somebody and so as this letter was being penned what I imagine we'll, we'll see is as Paul was in Corinth staying at a man Gaius's house, Gaius was a man that he had baptized, one of two people that he'd baptized on his second missionary journey. Gaius was a wealthy man. He had a house. They were in his house, him, Tertius, and, and Paul. Paul, I imagine, sort of pacing back and forth as he communicates his letter to the Romans and tertius is there writing down in shorthand i wasn't there but often what i do is with these phones these smartphones you can do everything there you can do anything with them we were just talking this morning marion just upgraded to an iphone and she's still lost in it and and uh there are many times when i'm out and about and i can't respond but i see something that comes through but my lovely wife is with me and i say okay Can you reply back to that person? And so she's on my phone going, dink, 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 typing up an email. And I'll say, well, this is what I'm trying to communicate. Now I'll say kind of word for word what I want her to write. And then she'll get partway through and I'll kind of like, oh, go back. And she's like, go back? Yeah, can you go back? Let's change it up. Okay, then she'll type it all out. But I've gone back and forth so many times, I've sort of forgotten the whole outflow. I'm like, now, can you read it back to me? And so she'll read it all the way through, and it's like, okay, can you change that one word to this? And then we'll get through the whole process, and she'll finally say, Okay, this is what we have. Dear so-and-so, uh, whatever the blah blah blah, sincerely gunner. Is that good? I'm like, yeah. She's like, send it? Yeah, send it. Okay. So I imagine that there's Tertius in the room writing for Paul, it says, Okay, this is what you have. Do you want me to go back and change it? He's like, yeah, 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 that looks good. Or no, let's make some modifications here. So this whole journey is going on. Now, who was it to? If we skip down to verse seven in the first chapter of Romans, we see that Paul writes, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul can we go back to the map please we can just leave it on the map for now so paul this is corinth there's a little isthmus the little canal there paul is is there paul is writing the letter to rome which is it modern day rome still modern day rome in italy he's writing this letter to them uh the recipients are found here in rome uh They had no relationship with Paul. As we go into the background or the setting of the church in, in Rome, in, in Rome we, we know that they were not established by Paul. Paul makes it clear throughout his letter, throughout his writings, that he longs to go to Rome. He wants to see them. He, he's, in verse 13, he says, I've, I've, never, I've always wanted to go to you, but I've been prevented. But I, but I have plans on getting to you on my way to Spain. He didn't plant the church. Paul didn't, or Peter didn't establish the church in Rome. Most people believe that what happened, how the church came to be in Rome is that back in Jerusalem in Acts chapter two at Pentecost, when they were there in the upper room and the spirit came upon them and, and all of those people that were in the upper room, as they began to proclaim the gospel in the language of the people that were there for Pentecost, there were a group of Italians, some Romans that were there that were Jewish believers. Jew, they were their Jews. They heard the message about Jesus. They believed. They went back to their home of Rome. And during this time, the the church sort of flourished that there were jewish people who had accepted jesus as messiah and the church began to grow and to grow Um, it flourished until cla uh, what was his name the the emperor claudius as he got older he started to get infuriated with people proselytizing other people and so there were jewish believers proselytizing jewish non-believers and it would end in a bunch of arguments and explosions and so finally claudius said there's no more proselytizing in rome and in fact all of you jewish believers i don't know if it was all of the jews or just the jewish believers but they were basically kicked out of rome and they had to leave we'll see that when paul goes to corinth he meets ananias or is it not, it's aquila and priscilla they're roman believers that were basically kicked out of rome And then they'll make their way back to Rome by the time that Paul writes Romans because he addresses them. So we see that there's this mass exodus of Jewish believers that leave Rome towards the end of of Claudius's reign. Now, Claudius was poisoned and and then Nero took over. Now, Nero didn't work out so well either for the Christians. But during this change, a bunch of the Jewish believers came back to Rome. So we know that in Rome, there's these two groups it was jewish believers and gentile believers initially the jewish believers dominated the church but as claudius came to power and moved all of the jewish believers out the gentiles started to increase and then as the jews came back there's this great power struggle between these two groups how do we do christians that are jews and now christians that are gentiles how do we fit together how do we work this was a major problem that paul was dealing with this is a a huge this is the the city of the empire they say all roads lead to rome because literally all of the roads during that time led to rome because that's where where the roman government exercised its power now where did paul write from when we get to the 15th chapter of Romans, Paul begins to, to share personal experiences. We're not going to go there, but, but he, he starts to explain what, what his plans are. And through Romans 15, we can isolate that he wrote Romans while on his third missionary journey and was in Corinth around A.D. 57. And so as he sat there, Paul um, established this church. It's recorded in Acts chapter 18. He spent 18 months there. He had a lot of relationships. His heart was to get to Rome ultimately because he wanted to get to Spain, uncharted territory where the gospel hadn't been yet. Rome would have been the ideal spot for him to have an offering, an appeal for money so that they could fund him to go the rest of the way. While he's there, he met Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, the, on, his, on his second journey. By his third journey, Aquila and Priscilla had gone back home to Rome. He's going to name drop a bunch of people in the last chapter to try to build a bond with the church in Rome. Um, <clears throat> Corinth is one of those letters. When you read Corinthians, you have to understand that you're only seeing the second half of a letter. People had called Paul or wrote Paul and said, Hey, we have all of these issues. Uh, prostitution was sort of part of their the worship in the in in the idol um if oh is it demetrius did i get the name right one of the or whatever her name was i'm blanking diana, diana that's the one diana so it was horrible like they, they they've i've heard people joke saying that corinth made las vegas look like a homeschool convention that it was so out of like that corinth was so out of control that as he sat there and he's writing to to the romans he was observing all of this stuff the first three chapters the depravity of man uh, uh, charles swindoll refers to the first three chapters as sin arama and panorama that he's sitting here looking at humanity And he's pinning what he's seeing. Um, And so he wants to send this letter to them. Why was the letter written is where we're moving on to. So first, Paul had this longing to go to Rome to meet the people there. It was a strategic city for getting the gospel out. If, If all roads lead to Rome, that means that all roads lead to the whole world. And if Paul got there and was able to to share the gospel there and to reach a bunch of people, then all of those people would go out amongst the world. It was the fastest way to get the gospel out. He needed to introduce himself to these people. He, He had no relationship with them. So Romans, in large part is a, is a is sort of a, uh, as a missionary wants to head out into the field, they start calling all the churches and saying, hey, I'd like to introduce myself. Can I meet with the pastor? Can we partner with you in some level? Because you could be very helpful in the mission that we're being called to. And so Paul wanted to introduce himself to the church at Romans. As he introduces himself to them, he lays out a doctrinal statement very clearly. He presents his understanding of the church and what God is called to do. Paul was a man who was for those observing him, he came with what's the word uh I'm not the, I'm lacking on the word, but but sort of he was a gamble. For the Jewish people, he was the Jewish believers, he was this man who'd basically done away with the law as far as they were concerned. That he just thrown away his heritage. And then there were there were the Gentiles who, who took his message and said, hey, "There's no law. There's total freedom to go crazy." It, it reminds me this this week. I Anna wanted a gift. She's wanted this this a picture like a map of the world, and so it came. And while she was out, I'm like, "Ooh, I'm gonna hang this map of the world." And so I hung it on the wall. And you know, you sit back and you go, "It's a little bit crooked." So you walk up to it and you do your like centimeter move up one side and you step back and you're like oh now it's crooked on the other side and then you go back and you you know and about 17 times later you get it just perfect and then the kids come home and they go hey look at that and it's like ah so i feel like this letter with this tension of the two groups paul's laying out his theology of how does israel still fit chapters 9 through 11 how how does The Gentiles who aren't under the law, how how do they live their life? And it's like he's getting everything perfectly framed theologically for these two groups who are now one. We'll see over and over and over again that they're one in Christ. And, of course, in Romans 1.13, this fundraising letter for Spain. In verse 13, as he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also. He wasn't going there for Fuji apples. He was going that fruit means financial resources so that he could get to Spain. This is sort of his subtle, like sort of greasing the skid. By the time we get to Romans chapter 15, in Romans chapter 15, verse 24 he says for i hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my journey be helped on my way there by you so he wants financial help to get to spain and so this is a a main portion of the letter okay so if you have little things or you can use the chart up here so we'll go to the chart we're near the end it's a little bit warm in here or maybe it's just me it's always me everybody's always freezing and i'm always the hot one Okay, so this is what you have on your little piece of paper. I wanna sort of explain this to you. So over here, view the left side is Romans chapter one, verse one. On the right side, this is Romans chapter 16, 27. So this is sort of the flow of the book moving this way. When we come down to the very bottom here, the main theme of the whole book, according to Charles Swindoll, this isn't right or wrong, I think it's very good. He says, God's righteousness is, is given to those who put their faith in jesus christ the key verses of romans and i agree with swindoll if you read the whole book and you had to pick one verse or two that summarized the whole of the letter it would be chapter one verses 16 and 17 which says for i am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes to the jew first And also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So that verse sort of sort of gives the thrust of the whole letter. Now, when we look at the top here, this is the book Romans Romans. The key is the gospel. I read it somewhere this week that this letter is a presentation by a defense attorney. The defense attorney is Paul The person on trial is the gospel, the good news. And so Paul is presenting the gospel, defending, explaining, and sharing the gospel with the Roman church. And so as the gospel relates to saving the sinner, chapter 1, verses 18 through 839, in the three main sections of the book concerning the saving of the sinner, concerning Israel, concerning Christian Conduct, at each one of these sections, the last verse has a great doxology. And so, as the gospel relates to saving the sinner, when we come to chapter 8, verse 39, we read these verses. Most of these verses are verses that people have memorized or have gone to in comfort. And so, as Paul concludes the first section dealing with the gospel as it relates to saving the sinner, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he, it's this big crescendo at the end of this section for those who were dead in their sins and transgressions are now alive in Christ and this is the hope and the assurance we have. As we go into chapter 9, uh, it, the most simplistic way of understanding, chapter 9 deals with Paul's defense of the gospel concerning Israel. All of these Jewish people who are now Christians, well, what about the promised kingdom, the, 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 the Davidic promises, which the Davidic uh, covenant, the Abrahamic covenant? Are these just all done away with? And so in chapter 9 of Romans, Paul uh, deals with israel's past he looks at the past we see his great love for israel that he has not abandoned his his brother i he says in this passage very early on he basically says if my israel brethren would give if as a nation would accept christ i would be willing to be cast into hell if it means that they would believe i know very few american christians <laughs> That believe with that sort of passion that said, you know what? If my nation would repent and accept Christ as Savior, I would be willing to go to hell for eternity. Ooh. Does Paul love Israel? Yes, he does. Then you get to chapter 10. Chapter 10 deals with the present state of Israel. What, what are we dealing with now? And then chapter 11 deals with Israel's future when the 70th week from Daniel kicks in. The, the things that they're looking forward to. You come into chapter 12, it starts up this new third section dealing with uh, the Christian's conduct in day-to-day life. Some very practical, user-friendly, it's the, the tipping point in Romans. Everything else is sort of doctrine. And then he says, because of all this doctrine, so what? And he's going to give us the so what in chapter 12. He's going to go from, from our social responsibilities to living under uh, the civil authorities that have been appointed over us to our personal lives and behavior. At 15 chapter, um, 15 chapter 3, Wait, I skipped over the doxology of... <clears throat> so in chapter 11, verse 33, his second doxology... As he ends dealing with the nation of Israel, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways for him or for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so then he moves into his final section, ending in chapter 15, verse 13. And in this third section, he ends with this. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So these three sections all end with this great doxology. Chapters, the end of 15, moving into 16, is very relational. He names some 35 people he they're almost references he says oh say hi to aquila and priscilla i know them tell them that i said hi tell all of these other people so and so says hi from here and he's sort of listing his references to the church in rome so that when he comes through they say no paul is a solid guy we can trust him okay we didn't cover any one passage we covered a lot seminary was said to me be like drinking a sip of water out of a fire hydrant Maybe you guys got a little bit of that today. I don't know. But my point in all of this is that hopefully we can look at the framework of Romans and see its value. I am confident that if we study this book as great men and women that have gone before us have said and suggested, maybe you don't remember the book of Romans word for word. But if you read romans one week at a time over the course of this year and you read romans say there's 52 weeks in a year let's just say you only do it 40 times do you think if you read romans 40 times this year you might have a better understanding of romans i guarantee if we allow ourselves to be transformed by this book we will be we'll be transformed individually and as we individually are transformed through this powerful letter of paul that our church will be transformed and ultimately our community and our the our missionaries, everybody that's connected to this church by touch or or membership, it'll be a powerful thing. Like this book has done a work in, in in the lives of people for many, many years, and I'm confident that God will use it here in our own lives. So, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for this great book of Romans. Lord, I pray that. What you wanted me to say was said and and that which I wasn't supposed to say would be forgotten by those in this room. Lord, I pray that by your spirit, we would gain a passion for your word. That we would long, Lord, um, to learn more about you. That we would come to understand this great Christian manifesto. As Charles Swindoll refers to it as the Christian constitution. Lord, I pray that you would help us to glean as much as we can from this powerful letter that you would do a work in our lives individually and as a church father we love you we praise you and we ask this in christ's good name amen